0: Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, everybody. How do you feel today? You feel a little bit tired? I know that's the wrong question probably to ask on Spring Forward, but I mean in a more general sense. How, how are you just doing? Has this been a restful week for you or a stressful week for you? Honestly, I don't know the last time I've heard somebody say, oh yeah, this has been a really restful week for me, unless you were coming back from vacation or something, right? It just seems like today, as we've talked about in this morning already, work is always just a little bit overwhelming. The home is a little too much to manage. School keeps pouring more and more things on top of me as a student. My tank just doesn't get filled up the way that it used to do. Maybe you're dealing with some sort of a physical illness. Maybe you're dealing with just getting plain older Maybe you're dealing with being a grandchild or a parent who has a wayward child or daughter or son somewhere along the line, or maybe this is all just the internet's fault, right? And there is some truth to that, right? Studies have shown that when we compare ourselves with unrealistic manicured portfolios of friends on social media, when we constantly feed ourselves with anxiety-inducing news stories from around the globe and from our own nation. When we are mentally trained, which we are now, to move from one thing to another like this, we only have seven seconds of time that we'll devote to something. Studies have shown all of that leads to this anxiety-inducing lifestyle of addiction and distraction and discontentment and even sleeplessness. I shared a couple summers ago that I went through a season in my own life. I can call it nothing other than just plain old burnout. I was worn out. I was tired. I was depressed. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to do anything quite honestly, honestly with you. And I met with this leadership coach, and we, he started asking me some questions. One of the questions he asked me was, tell me a little bit about your day off. I said, yeah, sure. Here's what I do on my day off. He's like, oh, let me ask you some more questions. Do you check your email? Yes, I do. Of course. Do you find yourself working? Well, I try not to, but yeah, sometimes I just find myself in that. And, and he just said, I want you to consider what you're doing in your life right there. And I'll come back to that, but if you're just joining us, if that... If it's your lifestyle at all, I think today is going to be a good day for you. And if you're just joining us, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We've called this series The Way of Jesus. And if you're following, here's what we're trying to do. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. And we've been in this little mini-section in the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 2, where Jesus has been confronting the main religious leaders of his day, a group called the Pharisees. And he's confronting them by making some audacious claims about himself. He claims that he can do things like forgive other people's sin, which only God can do that. He starts hanging out with sinners and they think, no, he's hanging out with unclean people. He's not supposed to do that if he really is this Messiah. He starts casting out demons. He gets rid of some of their rituals. They don't like what he's doing. And the point of this whole section, as we talked about last week, is that Jesus is claiming ultimate authority. Jesus is claiming authority as the king that God has sent. He claims authority at, over the law, even. And the Pharisees refuse to recognize him in this way while these sinners and demon-possessed and sick people are flocking to him. And so all of that leads us into this little final section of this mini-series that Mark has created where Jesus now confronts the Sabbath. And he claims authority even over this. And so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to take your Bible and turn it to Mark chapter two, starting in verse 23. You can find this story on page 813 in the black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. If you'd like to follow along, I encourage you to do that. You're welcome to take that Bible home with you as well. Now, if you're an astute observer, you notice we've kind of skipped verses 18 through 22. That is a section about fasting, and the reason we did that is I spoke on fasting on January 16th. But one thing I want you to notice, because that is still a part of this little mini section, is part of what Jesus does in that section is that he claims that all these old rituals that these religious leaders are following are sort of like old wine in an old wineskin. And he's come as this new wineskin where he's teaching new things and opening up a whole new way of life. And he is going to do that once again, when it comes to this area of the Sabbath. Now, before I actually open up the text, we got to talk a little bit about the Sabbath. I'm sure you've heard of the Sabbath at some point in your life. It's why Chick-fil-A is closed today, right? The Sabbath. But you've probably don't understand how important it was to a Jewish person living in the first century in which Jesus lived. you got to understand that the Sabbath is one of the two defining characteristics that separated the Jewish people from every other nation. It, along with circumcision, is what set them apart as God's chosen people. In fact, if you're following on your notes, it, the Sabbath, distinguished the Jews as the chosen people of God. And so you can imagine there's a reason it was promoted, it was defended, it was like a matter of national pride for these people. I think of it today, right? We believe here in the United States in life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We will defend that. It was that important to the Jewish people. Technically, the Sabbath started at sunset on Friday evening until sunset on Saturday. It is actually included in God's top 10 list of the 10 commandments. It's the fourth commandment. It's actually the longest of the 10 commandments. On the Sabbath, not only were Jewish people not allowed to work, neither were their servants or their livestock or even somebody who might be traveling through their land. Why did God set up the Sabbath? Well, originally, he set it up as a weekly holiday to remember his creation of the world. If you're following on your notes, it was a time to rest from work and celebrate his provision. You've probably heard the story, right? In six days, God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he Sabbathed. That simply means he ceased. He stopped. This isn't because God was tired, It's because God saw all he created, and it was very good. And then he invites his creation, human beings created in his image, to join him in this weekly reminder of celebrating the goodness of his creation. Later on, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he told them to remember the Sabbath for another reason. We read it in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. These are another reason God added, right? Command you to observe the Sabbath day. And so I just would sum it up this way. Not only was Sabbath a chance for people to remember the goodness of God and to rest in that, but it was also a chance for them to worship God for their rescue from slavery. So once again, if you're following on your notes, it was a time to worship God for his rescue from slavery. Sum it up. Here's how I'd sum it up. The Sabbath was a day to worship, and the Sabbath was a day to rest As one author writes, I like this, Sabbath was a day to pull up a chair, sink into it, look back over the work of the last six days, and just enjoy and worship a good God. Does that sound awesome or what? What a great gift that God gave to his people. Unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and other religious leaders had transformed the Sabbath into something very different from what God had originally intended it to be. Specifically over time, and here's what we can't miss, out of a genuine desire to obey God. Don't forget that. Genuine desire to obey God. They began to try to define exactly what kind of work was and wasn't permitted to do on the Sabbath. And they did this in a separate book from the Torah, which means the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. In a book they call the Mishnah. And so listen, in this simple command to rest... To cease from working. They added a whole little list of prohibitions. Here's what we think work means. Here's the kinds of things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. And unfortunately, again, if you're on your notes, this day of rest turned into a religious burden. These religious leaders and writers actually established 39 categories that constituted work in their definition. They forbade these things to be done on the Sabbath. Do you want to hear all 39 of them? I know you do. You guys can't wait for this. Here you go. Here's things you can't do. There's no carrying, no burning, no extinguishing No finishing, no writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and mark them the majors of the faith, right? It is by grace through faith alone that a person comes to, to Jesus Christ and is saved. We still believe things like do not murder. That's probably a command we should still be convicted about. Do not lie. Do not slander. Sex is designed between one man and one woman in the covenant relationship of marriage and so on. These are marriage and we can't act like those are unclear when it comes to God's commands. They are authoritative over our lives. The problem is at times, We can take our personal convictions about issues and elevate them to the same level as Scripture. For example, the option you choose for your children's education. Private, public, homeschool. You may be convicted about those things, but we don't elevate that to the level of Scripture, of black and white, right and wrong. How about some other examples? What shows you watch? You may be convicted about that. You may even have some great biblical warrant to argue with somebody about what we should view with our eyes, but we don't elevate that to the law. Here's another one. What political party you may support? I will say this once again. You may have great biblical warrant for the political party that you support, but we do not elevate that to the same level as a major of Scripture in the faith. This is what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. Yes, there were some things they were not supposed to do as a Sabbath, beyond just convictions. But they started adding things to these lists. If you're following, the Pharisees elevated their convictions as God's law. God commanded, rest, cease, stop. There are even places in the law, where he explains, here's some specific things I'd like you not to do on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees started to add to that, and it became equal to the law in their minds. And this is now where we pick up the story, and Jesus confronts this with them. Let's look at verse 23 together. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What are they doing that's unlawful, friends? They're gleaning grain, right? Here they are walking through a field, and according to the Pharisees, they're actually gleaning grain. That was one of the 39 no-nos. And of course, I'll just say it again. If you're a farmer... You absolutely, beyond conviction, should not be working on the Sabbath day in this way. But is what they're doing actually gleaning grain? That's a question up for consideration. Jesus, in verse 25, answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? I love Jesus. He always answers a question with another question. Doesn't that kind of drive you nuts sometimes, right? He asks them another question, and he's referring to this incident in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He goes on to explain it. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he, David, entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his command, his companions. Now look, Jesus, or yeah, Jesus is arguing here that David technically broke the law on that day. You see, only priests were allowed to eat the consecrated bread inside of the temple. But he didn't break the true spirit of the law. Since for Jesus, for God, the human needs around us are more important sometimes than the ritual observances. So that's one reason he tells this story. But something I didn't see, maybe you've missed this as well. I've never known this until I studied it this week. Jesus is doing something else here in this little story about David. Jesus is subtly putting himself on par with King David. Now, where am I getting this? At this point in David's life, he had been anointed as the king. However... He was not yet established as king in his kingdom. Saul was still the king during this time. And so David is on the run. He's gathering support. He's waiting for his time to finally be recognized as the king of Israel. Does this sound at all familiar with the gospel stories of Jesus? Here he is, Jesus, the true king. We saw him. He was anointed by his father at the bapt- his baptism as the king And yet, even his own people refuse to recognize him. He is not yet enthroned in his kingdom. Jesus makes this subtle comment to the Pharisees. Listen, something greater than your Sabbath laws is here right in front of you. And you can't even see it. If you're following on your notes, like David, Jesus is the true king. Though his kingdom isn't yet recognized Please don't miss it. Another audacious claim of authority by Jesus. He actually makes this claim much more directly in the next verses, which I have on your notes. Would you be willing to read that out loud with me there from the New Living Translation? It says, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Them is fighting words. Remember how important the Sabbath was to the Jewish people? One of the two things that distinguished him as chosen by God, Jesus says, I'm the king over that. It's like LeBron James looking right in Michael Jordan's face and saying, I'm the greatest of all time, right? As Brian showed us a couple weeks ago in the Gospels, the title, Son of Man, is used only by Jesus of himself. It's a reference back to Daniel chapter seven. I think it's worth us looking at this again, just so we understand how bold these claims Jesus are making. Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked and there was before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Wow. He's claiming, that's me. That's me. That's the one that Daniel saw thousands of years ago. I'm the one that has power and authority and dominion, yes, even over the Sabbath. In Matthew's version of the stories we're looking at together this morning, Jesus explains more about how, listen, you see how the priests work in the temple on the Sabbath, right? And he uses that and he makes this another audacious claim. Look at what he says in Matthew 12, verse 6. I tell you. Something greater than the temple is here. Yikes. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. I mean, the temple, this is the place where heaven meets earth, right? The one place where we as human beings could commune with God. And this guy is claiming, I'm even more important than that. And they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Well, it's very simple. He thinks he's the son of man who has come to establish God's kingdom that will never pass away. But the Pharisees refuse to see that. If you're following on your notes, as we noted earlier, God instituted the Sabbath. Jesus now claims authority over it. He says, listen, you guys, you don't have authority over the Sabbath. You don't tell people what they can and cannot do. I have the authority over that. So we've seen in this little mini section of Mark, right? Jesus casts out demons, heals the sick, sick, cleanses the leper, forgives sins. He hangs out with unclean people. And now he claims, I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. There is no doubt about it as God, he is the king and he is ushering God's kingdom. He is fulfilling all of God's promises. Listen, this is one of the things people talk about. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And he fulfills everything that it points to. And one of the things I love about it is as Lord of the Sabbath, he says, I want to remind you what Sabbath really is for, what it was intended for. The Sabbath was made for men and women. It wasn't made, we weren't made for the Sabbath. In other words, the Pharisees had begun to become so focused on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, it had become a burden instead of what it was designed to be. They forgot what the Sabbath was for. Does that ever happen in your own life? If you're married and you have a fight, do you ever forget what you're actually fighting about by the end? Right? They forgot. They forgot what the whole point of this thing was. It was to rest and it was to worship. And Jesus reminds them, right? Listen, the whole idea behind this was because I loved my people. And I knew what was best for them. And I set aside a day for them to celebrate and to remember and to worship my provision and my rescue from them. If you're following, Jesus affirms God gave the Sabbath to bless, not to burden. Now Mark goes on to tell a little another story to continue this theme of authority over the Sabbath. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now let's just pause here. The language Mark uses is a little interesting. Some believe he, they, the Pharisees have actually intentionally placed this man in the synagogue to see what Jesus would do with them. And they begin to watch him closely, right? We see that in the text. This literally means, potentially, they set him up there in order that they could observe him and catch him in a trap of, quote, healing on the Sabbath. They're like suspicious customers watching the clerk count out their money, right? What is he going to do here? Do you see anything ironic about this? They're trying to seek, trap Jesus in healing, The religious leaders basically are acknowledging at this point, yeah, this guy performs miracles, but he better not do it on the Sabbath. I mean, what are they saying about his identity if they're trying to trap him in this situation? They're blind because he doesn't fit into the old wineskins that they're used to. Verse three, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them another questions: Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to eat? To do evil, to save life or to kill? What does it say after that? But they remain silent. They don't care one bit about the pain and the suffering that this man has had to deal with, perhaps for his whole life. He became nothing more than a pawn in their confrontation with Jesus who they really want to accuse. They chose neutrality over love. For Jesus, if you're on your notes, where good needs to be done, there is no neutrality. There's either good or there's evil, right? There's no neutrality. Failure to do good, especially to a person in need, is not neutral. Whether it's lawful or not, whether he has a right to heal on the Sabbath or not, Jesus says, I will always choose the need of a person over a ritual observance. As James says, the true litmus test of true versus false religion is its response to injustice, to the least of these. The Pharisees' religion was separated from human need, right? For religious people, rules are not about the intent of the heart, but what I can empirically measure in my own life, right? Matters of purity, matters of fulfilling legal requirements. This is why we love religion. I love religion. You know why? Because I can measure myself against you. I can say, oh, I'm better than that person in this gold star in heaven. Religion allows me to just view my life as a set of rules that I can follow in order to get a good job, pat on the back by God. Jesus says we don't leverage human beings for the sake of our own religion. Jesus never used people, powerful people, powerless people for ulterior purposes. For Jesus, the gospel of God is different from religion. I hope you've heard that at some point in your life because the gospel of God is about what's going on in your heart not what's going on in your external actions. Will those things change? Yes, once your heart is changed and out of a new motivation. The second question Jesus asks, I just want to point out, he's no longer talking about this man. He's talking about himself. He says, is it lawful to save a life or to kill a life on the Sabbath? Again, don't miss the irony here. Who's really breaking the heart of the law of the Sabbath? Here these Pharisees are, wondering if Jesus is going to heal a man, while at the same time they're plotting how they can kill him. Do you think they're really living out the intention that God set forth in the Sabbath? Of course not. Read verse 5 out loud with me on your notes there. It says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. I found it interesting. The only other time Jesus' grief is so seen is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is arrested. He's distraught. The word translated stubborn doesn't always mean malicious intent. It's much more of just this idea of a hardened heart. An unwillingness to see what is right before you. And he's angry about that, righteously indignant. How can you guys be sitting here and care more about the letter of the law than a person in need who is standing right before you? Friends, we've been talking in this series, we want to learn the way of Jesus. I'll just say this, the way of religion leads to pride. Pride. It leads to hardness of heart. The way of Jesus leads to love, love for God and love for one another. And so we see Jesus heals this man. It's no big deal for him. The section closes this way. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians, these were Jewish people who really enjoyed the Roman rule. The Pharisees, Jewish people who wanted nothing more than to get the Romans out of there. And they joined together, the least likely of groups, to plot against Jesus. So, there's the story. And here's the question What in the world does this have to do with us today? Let me go back to the question I started this sermon with Are you tired? Are you anxious? Are you exhausted? Are you weighed down in religion? Are you worried about the future? I think this passage can speak to us in three real distinct ways and I'd like to walk through those as we close. The first way, if you're falling on your notes, is that as Lord of the Sabbath, you need to know only Jesus can bring rest to your soul. Religion will never bring you rest because you'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up. You'll always be spinning on what I call the hamster wheel, trying, trying, trying into exhaustion. In Matthew's version of these two stories, he inserts these famous words of Jesus. I'm sure you've heard them before. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's no accident this is included in this section on the Sabbath. As Lord of the Sabbath, he wants to say to you and me, only I can bring true rest to your soul. The rest that was lost at Eden has now come in the person of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, though his kingdom is not yet come. And he says, if you come to me, I will bring rest for your soul. And I will say to you, do you believe in Jesus? So much so that you've given up on your work's righteousness, coming to him, hearing the word saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of Jesus. Our biggest problem in life has been solved because you've been made right with God once and for all. Remember, one of the reasons the Jews were to celebrate the Sabbath was to remind them of their rescue from slavery in Egypt. Like I told you, the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Jesus who rescued his people from slavery, not to Egypt, not to another country, but to the slavery of sin and death. And because he did, you can have rest for your soul right now. If you're tired of spinning on the wheel, of religion, he says to you right now, come to me, the Lord of the Sabbath, and you will find rest. Have you done that? Are you still on that spinning wheel? As the Lord of the Sabbath, he will give you rest, a rest that you cannot find anywhere or in anything else. The second thing I believe this passage reminds us of is that as Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus will usher in an eternal rest one day. Remember that reference he makes to David, right? The king, but his kingdom is not yet fulfilled. Friends, even if you know Jesus and the sole rest he provides, would you just agree with me that this world is not as it should be yet? <laughs> Suffering, pain, war, disease, sorrow, crime. It's not how it should be. As his followers, we're not immune to those things either. Jesus reminds us right before he ascends up to heaven in John 16, 33: I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world the full experience that the Lord of the Sabbath wants us to experience in rest will not happen until he returns, takes up his throne, and establishes his kingdom once and for all. Until then, this world is still under the fall and the curse of the fall. But I wonder if as followers of Jesus, half of our frustration and exhaustion in life would lessen if we kept reminding ourselves, of course, this is not how the world is meant to be, nor is this how the world will be. Because the king is coming again. And he will put an end to tears and weeping and disease and wars when he establishes his kingdom once and for all. God never promised me life would be easy, but he did promise it would be meaningful. He did promise he would give me the strength I would need to endure it. And he did promise that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will provide an eternal rest that we long for. The Lord of the Sabbath will come again. And he will bring us into that rest. Amen? So let us live this day, today, this hard day, this day of war, this day of pain, this day of suffering, of exhaustion, of anxiety, and worry looking towards that day. Finally, I think this passage reminds us that as Lord of the Sabbath, he still invites us to enjoy a Sabbath rest. And by that I mean a weekly rhythm of rest in our lives. One of the questions people ask is, should we still practice the Sabbath as Christians? I don't like the way that question is worded. There is no should about it. I'm not gonna say you should. Maybe a better question would be, would it be wise for us to practice a weekly rhythm of resting and worship for a 24-hour period? If the studies are correct, and you've been nodding your heads all morning, our culture is exhausted, depressed, Anxious and so much more. We're just running so fast. We no longer know how to take the time to rest or at least not rest properly. Perhaps we could see the Sabbath as an invitation to experience healing and joy and rest in him. I've heard people say, we're free from the Sabbath. That was part of the law. You're right. You're no longer under the curse of the law. It's also true that the Sabbath is one of the only Ten Commandments, the only one, in fact, that is not included in the New Testament, but even so. The Sabbath still stands as wisdom. I love how one author says, think of it this way. There isn't a command in the New Testament to eat food or drink water. That's just wisdom. It's how God set up the human body to work. Similarly, you can skip the Sabbath. It's not a sin. It's just stupid. Maybe that's a little extreme. But as I mentioned earlier, here I am sitting with this leadership coach asking about my rest habits. And he challenges me. Hey, try to think about this differently. Turn off your phone. Don't do other things. Rest. Cease, Sabbath. And I began to do that. And I'm not going to say I'm not exhausted or anxious, any of those things anymore, but it has made a difference in my life. Today, I practice the Sabbath on Mondays. I know that won't work for most of you. Traditionally, Sundays have been the day when Christians have Sabbath. I try to make it a day when God has my full attention. Literally, that means I get up, I sleep in if I can, and I'm cool with that. I spend an extended amount of time in the word and in prayer cuz Sabbath is meant to worship. I'm in no hurry. It's a day when I'm fully available to my wife and to my to my family and even my friends. Peggy and I might go to a coffee shop, play some games there, maybe we'll do a marriage study. We'll just hang out. My Sabbath day is a day I don't accomplish anything. Does that worry you? I don't feel guilty about it anymore. It's a day when my email is closed. It's a wonderful day. It's a day when you can't get a hold of me unless I want you to. If I could sum it up, it's a day to rest physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's also a day to worship God without hurry. One of the books that most influenced me when it comes to this is by John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called, oh gosh, I'm blanking on it. The Ceaseless Elimination of Hurry. That's what it's called. And he writes this in this book. The Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. Make sure you get the difference. On a day off, you don't work for your employer, but you still work. You grocery shop, go to the bank, mow the lawn, work on the remodel project, chip away at that sci-fi novel you're writing. On the Sabbath, you rest and you worship. That's it. This was life-changing for me. Do you have something like this in your life? Friends, here's... What I'd like to say as we close, the Lord of the Sabbath is inviting you into his rhythm. Work and rest. Work and rest. We're actually going to do a whole series this summer on those two things. I can't wait for it. It's going to get a lot more practical than what I can do and squeeze into in this message this morning. But here's my encouragement to you. What if practicing a weekly Sabbath is exactly what you need in your life right now? What if? What if? There doesn't have to be legalistic rules about it, but what would truly bring you a new sense of rest to fight against your burnout and your anxiety, your broken relationships, your busyness, your worn down immune system, your low energy levels, your anger problem, the tension you're feeling, confusion, emptiness. What if you saw practicing a Sabbath as an invitation to you, not as an obligation? Why not at least try it and see what it might do for you as we close here's the question for us to consider as we prepare ourselves for communion will i come to the lord of the sabbath to experience true rest and what i mean by that maybe you need to come to him today to find rest for your soul once and for all you say the name of jesus but you still practice religion come to me all you who are weary and i will give you rest Maybe today is the day you just needed to be reminded this world isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not how God wants it to be. And yet one day he will make it how it is supposed to be. And I can live in rest because of that. Or maybe today is the day when you have just been challenged once and for all, I gotta do something about this anxiety, about this worry, about this depression. Maybe I could practice something in my life that could bring me physical rest in a new way. God did not design our bodies to endure what we put them through. He gives us a gift called rest. Let's pray. Lord of the Sabbath, we worship you and praise you. You are the king, eternal, You reign and you rule. You don't pile upon us things that are to exhaust us. You come to us and say, come to me, come to me. If you are weary and burdened down, because in me you will find rest. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room or watching online right now. Encourage them. Speak words of life. Fill them afresh with the invitation to find real rest in you and you alone. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit CherryHillsFamily.org or find us on Facebook.